We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Today, we are covering At Ticones, a.k.a. the Hidden Secret Chapter from Demons by Fyodor Dostoevsky. So if you didn't know, Crypto here, he's only read parts one and part two and Etty Cone. So that's going to be his knowledge base for discussing this. I'll have read the whole book, but I'm going to hold back on spoilers because we'll have a whole section dedicated to part three, which will include the discussion of Etty Cones if something were to come up from this section to discuss. Have you been looking forward to the Etty Cones chapter in our discussion more than anything else? Yeah. Or just yeah, the have. end of the book? Okay. N- no, no, I have been looking forward to this because <laughs> because what's so interesting about this, especially reading it out of place, is this is, to me, this is the centerpiece of the book to me. This is okay. everything when it comes to the, the I don't want to say wrestling Stavrogin because to understand Stavrogin is probably a lost art. Like we don't have Dostoevsky to ask questions to anymore. But I think it's that search, right? Like that that desire to understand him is is the most rewarding journey right like it's a journey before destination discussion and, and this is that chapter Th- this is that chapter that is the um the infamous uh napoleonic man or the infamous uh, grand inquisitor from from brothers k the at t cones is that chapter for me and it's so sad that it was never released with the book during his lifetime yeah so i i guess i ask you the question of do you feel like it did me a service reading it out of place? Because I read the 10 and then I read this chapter afterwards in order to, you know, fill out my knowledge base. And I don't know how I would have felt had I had that chapter inserted in there. Because you did, right? You read all 11 chapters when you first read this. Yeah, but there's not like a ton of crazy Stavrogin things that happen in, in nine and 10. Uh, it, it's really the part three prep that I think that matters. And, and even then, like when you read the in place nine, like the part that didn't get edited, it just says like literally in the PVM Volhonsky translation, it just starts with meanwhile, <laughs> like that's, that's how we transitioned from where Stavrogin was leaving is just like, I don't know if I'm a part of your organization and, and, and people just like, you're beautiful. I love you, please. <laughs> and then instead of having this crazy backstory to Stavrogin, it just goes, meanwhile. <laughs> yeah. It's a little bit, uh, almost disheartening, but so I guess one of the things that the, the point of this, this video, um, beyond our discussion is how would you suggest being that you've read it a specific way and you've mm-hmm. read the entirety of the, of the novel, unlike me, how would you suggest a reader read it? You know, it's it's the age-old argument of if, of the original intent of the artist could not be realized, right? Because the the, the Mikhail Katkov, like his, his uh, editor at the Russian Messenger, 
refused to publish this. He said that this is an effrontery to the Russian soul, to to the Russian morality, right? And what does that mean that this chapter isn't fit for the Russian standards of, of what's right and wrong, right? So the fact that it could never be inserted and the fact that he never was able even in his lifetime to get it included in the book, some people view it as like, well, you should just read it as it was published. I... Artists can't always achieve their end vision. It's sometimes hard to craft the perfect mm. part. It's almost impossible to craft the perfect book. To me, I would like to honor what is the spirit of the book than the actualization of the book. And to me, that's including that. I think you can either include it at the end of part two or in space of, of you know, as chapter eight, as opposed to it being, you know, spit later on. I think reading it in line in two brought more rewarding elements to three, but that's a sample size of one. I can never go back and read three without that knowledge, but I will say, <laughs> I'll say it added a lot. I was constantly thinking about what this chapter meant through three. That's how powerful this chapter was for the challenge of understanding a, a character like Stavrogin. All right, well, let, let's get into it then. So we are inserted to the, the night after him walking out of that, that event about will you inform? And that night he, he can't sleep. Nikolai can't sleep. So he heads out to the monastery, where if you remember, there's a chapter earlier where they're like, you should go talk to Keith Ticone. <laughs> and he finally yeah. asked for Ticone. <laughs> and you'd almost expect um, like a Father Zosimov, like a, a well-respected, perfect man that can influence our religious oh, no. life. Nah, that's not what we get, is yeah. it? You get like a bum. <laughs> that's how I imagined him. Well, he's not, he's not well-respected, and particularly yeah. for the time when you start talking about nerve pain or physical ailments, this was a time where some people still viewed uh, that as punishment from God, that you did something wrong even, that, that you deserved some type of suffering in life. Yeah, exactly, that you were uh, did something bad in a previous life or whatnot, yeah. Yeah. So we meet Tikone and he's just like, oh yeah, your mom, she stopped by like once a month. And uh, I think I remember you. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. And, he, and he's like, I, I've heard about your crazy brain rumors. Uh, well, welcome. And here's where we kind of talk about those three Bs, right? Like the behaviors of going to church, of being in the community that a lot of Russian Orthodox have. It's more than just being in a religion. It's belonging somewhere. Right. And, and same with Tikon. He does belong at this monastery, even if he is the the outcast, the social. Uh, he's not he doesn't fit the the social milieu that you think of when it comes to a lot of uh, traditional priests. Right. Exactly. So is is he set up to be this way? So he's more relatable to Startrovin so that they can connect and have this conversation and that Stavrogin will will divulge all the information that out to, you know, cause he just, he has like diarrhea of the mouth and just gives up his whole, you know, he, he confesses all of his sins basically. And, and I feel like that's the, that's like the only point. Let's, let's break it down step by step. Right. Because okay. why, and I don't know the answer to this. Why would he go to a priest. He's seeing demons. He's seeing hallucinations. And even Ticon himself is like, yeah, you should see a doctor. <laughs> but he comes to see the priest. Why? Well, the time period, if you are seeing demons, then it must be something related to the divine. So he's going to a priest to for confession or help 
to think that possibly the way that that the, the cure is through the church. Well, if you believe it's true, but but he's an atheist. He's a materialist. He's the wild man that has been seeing women and inviting people but over. Is he? Well, th- that's that's how he's positioned, right? At least in the beginning or in the backstory. Right, but if someone is trying to explain the unexplainable, where's the first place they always go? They go to the place that has the unexplainable, the miracles, the God, the divine. That's where he's going. So let's talk about some of his actions because he, in this letter to our earlier discussions of him being this enigmatic, charming, scary character, we finally get some introspection. This this is what we've missed and why I think this is a really important part in part two is to finally see this character and know he's not the hero too at that. <laughs> oh yeah. Very far from the hero. So, so the women, right? We, 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 we start this letter, we get the introspection. He invites women over he, here. I'm seeing this chickadee Badoo who's married here. I'm seeing this baby boo over here. Who's a maid. <laughs> and, and, I, and I've got this great plan of hooking us all up for this party just so I can uh, have some popcorn and sip my whiskey and watch these chicks go at it. What? Wait, 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 wait. Yeah, that, that's what like was heartbreaking once I started reading this is I feel like it's almost a disservice. Like the editor, I know that he's trying to save the modesty of Russians or whatever, but it feels so real now that to get perspective and it, it humanizes uh, Stravogin. It, it, it gives him, um, I mean, it, it makes him a terrible person, but it gives him a quality of understanding, uh, I think, for the rest of the characters. I mean, they don't know what, what he's done, obviously, but as you know, an omnipresent reader, now I do, and I can understand why he's behaving the way he is, why he's having the interactions the way he's having them, the why the way he discusses what he's doing, and why he seems to be listless um, through much of the book so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he's broken almost, right? Because yes. you, you use the word he's humanized here, right? Which some people are like, wait, wait, what does he mean by that? Right? Like some people might have had that reaction when you said that. Because he humanizes himself through the dehumane acts that he does with these women. Because if he truly believes that he is making the laws of what's right and wrong for his life, he should be able to mess with these chicks and find it hilarious and do what he wants if that's what he thinks is right for him. If that's what he is, if he's the one writing on his own heart what what morality means. Mm. But right? So so it's almost like, you know, if we look at the author Dostoevsky, he took a personal affront when you wrote your own morality, right? Like we know that he viewed uh, submissiveness, which is a Christian ideal in terms of the submissiveness to God, in terms of accepting the laws of God. Like that is, that's a lifelong Christian struggle that like many Christians, you're meant to sin, you're meant to fall, right? Like it's it's really hard to live that life. And here's Steph Rogen who's like, nope, no, that that's a lie. I can write my own ones. So is he doing these acts to prove that that God's law is not written on his heart? Is he doing it as the middle finger mm. to the ultimate middle mm. finger to to a person like Dostoevsky, who's like, how can you not belong to the Russian Orthodox Church? Don't you know and feel that that's wrong? He's like, no, I'm going to do this and I won't feel remorse. Oh, crap. Maybe he does feel remorse. 
Yeah, I guess this is the chapter that really feels to me, as you said, at the heart of the book. Take out the politics, take out um, the scheming, the, you know, the culture, take out the uh, class divide, everything. It comes down to morality. Can you have morality without religion? And I think that this is the character that embodies that of, for me reading it, through the eyes of, of Dostoevsky, that you cannot. That if you do not have religion, you don't have morality. And as a result, Stravogin is, 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 the, is the result of that. Yeah. And I know, I know that this is a very personal subject for a lot of people that some people struggle with understanding, right? Cause, cause you have that famous quote without God, everything's permissible. Right. And it's, it's Dostoevsky isn't saying you're not, you can't, it's not that you can't be moral without God. He, he, I, I don't think that he's saying that, but I think in my view is he's saying, where do you get your, your source of right and wrong? And how do you cohesively as a community, as a nation define that? Don't get me wrong, right? Like we, we, you and I have both read like the Moral Landscape by Sam Harris. Uh, there, there's lots of arguments for where our morality and does universal morality exist. But to your point about Dostoevsky's attack here, he is trying to posit that question of how do you get that to work for a society? Because you see how he causes direct harm for for these women. But also, we we got to move on to our our girl, fourteen year old Matrosha. I wrote Matrosha, but isn't it Matroshka? Maybe it's a translation problem I have. Well, I may use both terms to describe her here. I, w- I want to real quick though, real quick. Uh, I think that is is he def- defending it or is he testing morality through Strovigen? Is is the way that I kind of think of this as he's you know going through the course of events, uh, and I think that's that's a, a very important distinction of of testing what does it mean to be moral and defending one's morality through religion. I just I just want to you know throw that out mm-hmm. there. But go well, ahead. That's fair. That's fair. Well, it's kind of like the. <laughs> I'm going to dumb it down even more. Uh, the ra- <laughs> you know that raptor scene with Jurassic Park. That's oh, Stravogin. That's Stravogin, yeah. where he's testing the fence, right? Like, let's yep. imagine, let's imagine you're in this bubble called society. That's not a hard yeah. uh, stretch of the imagination. He's pushing the boundaries of what we consider morality to see what breaks, to see what yeah. what seeds of disruption he can cause. And I guess I, as from an editor perspective in 19th century Russia, I guess I could see him in this chapter doing more than just slightly pushing or, uh, uh, you know, nudging against those boundaries. He shattered them, you know, because as you're going to move into the next part of the story of, of what happens with the, uh, the young lady, the very well, it, young it, lady. It's even slow into that because remember, it started with that penknife where, where he, he kind of like misplaced it and, and he, he eventually he kind of knew where it was, but he blames her where he has her, her mother, the landlady just beat her and he, he does it so he can watch her be beaten because, you know, this is kind of like the assault on, you know, Dostoevsky being very biblical, knows religion. Well, uh, the, the Matthew eight eighteen six I think is kind of important for both this scene and the next scene with this little girl of the assault on, the on the young child is the ultimate effrontery to God, 
right? He specifically writes how those that cause harm to these children shall be hung, drowned at sea, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's the idea that you can't pervert innocence unless mm, yep. you become pure evil yourself. Yeah, perverting innocence. That's, uh, that's what was literally on my mind. And I was going to say is that's how he gets you. Uh, that That's how I think that uh, Dostoevsky ropes you in um, almost to his side. And, and I hate to phrase it that way, but that he's trying to say is without God and religion, this is what could happen, possibly happen. Let me let me read you a material quote. Let's 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 dive right into this. It says, "It was not meanness that I loved. Here, my reason was completely sound, but I liked the intoxication from the tormenting awareness of my baseness. In the same way, each time I stood at the barrier waiting for my adversary to shoot, I felt the mm. same shameful and violent sensation, and once extraordinarily strongly. This this was a light bulb moment for me." Right, it's it's not the evil and the baseness. It's that intoxication that he gets from knowing he's he's attacking the fence of Russian morality. Is he though? I mean, you just you're doing it for pleasure's sake. It seems selfish. It doesn't seem like he is giving the finger to Russia. He's just doing it because it makes him feel good. Well, I, he gets a kick not from the output, from the process, right? If you mm. look at the women, like Lizaveta, Daria, Maria, what happens in Switzerland stays in Switzerland, right? Uh, <laughs> oh my gosh, I knew you were going to bring it up eventually. <laughs> he, he toys with them, he messes with them, then he moves on to Count K, his friend Shatov, uh, Maria, you know, where's my Prince Harry? All of these things are people that, is, is, he, psychopath, is he a psychopath? Does he not feel anything for them in the way that he uses and abuses them. He doesn't get pleasure from the output. He, he gets pleasure from the process, from the pushing of the boundaries. And I think the reason why for this is a, a, a Una specific statement of what I took from the novel, the pleasure comes from pushing the boundaries of God's law, because the more he breaks it and gets away with it, the more that validates that he's right. See, I would argue that he doesn't even believe in God if he's a true atheist, so why would that be relevant at all? It's not. And that's what makes him such a complex character is he's just diving into his own selfish pleasure and needs and 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 to be damned with God is what he is saying because he doesn't believe in him, but he sure as heck is now scared of it a little bit because he's having these visions and where's the first place that he turns back to. That's what makes him such a complicated character mm -hmm. and why I feel like this chapter needs to be in the part two in order to fully realize this character. And it's just, it's such a disservice not to be in there. And I'm glad that you made me read it the way I did because it makes it that much more poignant. But, uh, I think that it's a push and pull. I don't think there's any right or wrong answer. Well, it's all up to interpretation, right? Of course. Because, yeah, always, always. Because we, we didn't even talk about how he starts kissing this little girl, and eventually it moves mm. beyond that, and it's and it becomes abusive to the point of, of this is, I think, the part where it's like, oh, uh, we can't print this, right? Yep. And the little and the little girl is, is she's, her her innocence is gone. And, and she's broken from it. She's sick. She starts to retract from society. Her joy 
has been taken from her by an adult. Stolen. Right? Stolen. It's the, it's the 18, Matthew 18, uh, 6, right? And and he wants to watch because then he knows he knows that he's right because because he doesn't have he's writing his own heart. He's from Nietzsche's mind of will to power. He has the master mentality of being able to decide what's right and wrong from a morality perspective. But that's not what happens. I think he starts to realize that he's a slave because there is something universally wrong about this perversion. There is something universally bad that you will get beaten up. You will be, you, you, people will easily step out of, of the law of what's right and wrong to hurt you if they find out you do that activity. And that's Stavrogin's revelation is that he starts to realize I did wrong, right? And I think to me, we, we've talked before about the structure of tragedy. When we talk about mimesis, when we talk about anagnorisis, when we talk about homartia, uh, mimesis being, does this represent reality? Is this representative of real life? I think we've made that case pretty clear. Where this is Russian society, this is clearly a orthodox Christian, <laughs> heavily Russian orthodox society in terms of what's right and wrong, right? To the point yes. where they're, they're in the state, passing laws, uh, the patriarch, a lot of control as to what kind of happens in, in, in Russian society, right? Right. No, no, no question there about from a Mises standpoint of does this book reflect reality, right? And then hamartia, do you remember what that word means? No, sir. <laughs> you can almost just replace it with the, the word hubris, and it's pretty much accurate a lot of the times. It's the downfall of the character, the character that okay. had a belief in something, but that belief wasn't right, right? So what is, I, and it's up to interpretation, and I guess this is a good question for the audience to chime in if you disagree. What do you think was Stavrogin's downfall? What was his miscalculation? I know for me personally, I think that it was he thought he was better than what he believed to be his social norm. Uh, because from his perspective, he is an atheist. Uh, so if he truly does not believe in a god, then that's not it but it's his fellow Russians. And I guess he, he he's going so low into depravity, I guess, to feel. And when he finally gets there, he has the revelation that he is wrong. Um, and I think it comes back to a core human nature of, of breaking innocence. And, and maybe not so much as breaking of innocence or perverting of innocence, the pollution of a, the youth it's that the it, it is that youth the that that's that that's the the core mechanic of it is because that's the the perpetualness of our species is that's how we move forward into the future is is our young um and i mean those that are like him in even our modern day society are shunned by other criminals uh th that's the lowest of the low so I I don't know. Maybe he was trying to find the point where 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 is his soul? Will God punish him at a certain point? Will this come back to haunt him? It, that that seems to be his reconcile of of the pushing forward of those boundaries. Uh which is just heartbreaking because you've definitely not grown I think to love this character at this point in the book. 
with or without this, uh, well, definitely without this this chapter. Uh, but this definitely takes your perspective of uh, of him to a negative point that is irreparable. Well, you're starting to move kind of like into the anagnorisis, right? Like the light bulb moment. So, so yeah. for for me, the hamartia is his miscalculation, is his belief that he could live without you know society's morals or God's morals, that he could create his own in a sense. Again, right. my, my own personal experience, the real purpose of Hamartia is how does this explain to the consumer, to the reader, that uh, that reader pity, that reader feeling of compassion? Because what's going to ultimately happen is an ignorosis, which is the light bulb moment to realize that you're wrong, your downfall, right? And to me, I think the downfall is literally this scene with this little girl where he's listening to her taking the end of her life where she, where the hanging is happening. And the fact that he listens for it is very critical for me. And I don't think it's because again, some people read it as he's reaching, he's, he's looking for that pleasure or that he's looking for the validation that he's right. To me, I think it's his realization that he's wrong because after this, he becomes a shut in. He's only got 10% of ownership of talking time when he's in a room with Piotr at the same time. <laughs> but also, yeah. um, when we talk about him being a, a very complex character, did you know that his name, Stavrogin, Stavros is a Greek word for cross? Bearing mm. the cross. Jean is Russian for horns. So he's both good and evil to the Zimbardo talk that we talked about in part one, where people have the capacity for both. We have the choice for both. And the positions we're putting, the barrel, that bad barrel that we're put in, all of these come down to these personal choices that we have to whether we're following God's law, whether we're following what we think are universal moralistic standards of what's right and wrong and what's abuse of others. We all make a choice, and that choice results in actions What's governing our choices is perhaps our consciousness and these different laws that we have around us. And when Stavrogin realizes he can't write his own, I think that's his downfall and hits his breaking point when he realizes he can't just be the master-slave mentality, the, the master mentality that he really wanted from a Nietzsche perspective. Yeah. I guess we haven't really talked a lot about uh, you know his his moral consciousness and how— he went through this and uh, how he would able to allow himself, I guess, quote, to fall that far. Uh, but it's interesting how he he wanted those morals to be pushed and that he went to the negative view of it. He could have tried to push morals in a positive light and he felt like it, and I think this happens to a lot of people, is the negative is easier. To do harm is easier than to do good, in my humble opinion. <laughs> yeah. What you're starting to see is is we're having this really long discussion that started in the previous chapters and sections of this, where we started to talk about what makes something right or wrong in that mask. And we even started the discussion of what allows someone to change their mind, right? So we're starting to see the complexity that Dostoevsky wrote into this novel now, let's say he no longer believes in what he used to believe in, and he decides to change his mind. He becomes the Ivan Ivanov of, I no longer stand for this. 
And we see the complex web of even the choices that you made on a personal level that you no longer agree with can be your own prison in your own mind. Mm. Well, hopefully we get some self-sacrifice because, I mean, and, and even then I don't know if if he is redeemable. We shall see. <laughs> yeah, well, and that's going to be something that I've saved for our last part is that idea of uh, redemption, <laughs> salvation. Those, those have very yeah. specific meanings of what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be redeemed? Uh, and we're going to go into that in this next part. And how, right? Yeah. And how. Yeah, but I think we've obviously made the case that this clearly has a lot of elements of the tragedy. So if you're asking about catharsis, for those of you that have already finished this book and are kind of listening, don't don't spoil it for people in the comments. But think about that. What's the catharsis for this? What's the peripatia in terms of the sudden reversal of fortunes for Stavrogin? You know, and I won't give away what happens at the end, but what does that mean in terms of how we feel as a reader of what made us feel good or justified for Stavrogin's actions uh, in terms of what Piotr's doing? There's a lot of discussion to happen here. We hope to see you in part three where we can actually reveal what happens in the discussion. I <laughs> uh, hope you guys are having a great time doing this. Playlist down below to follow along for part three uh, again. Appreciate your time. My name's Una. Peace.